I am very enthusiastic today with regard to our talk with Ed Struzik, specifically related to his book, Swamplands, Tundra Beavers, Quaking Bogs, and the Improbable World of Peat. Uh, this is gonna be an exciting conversation because we probably don't think enough about the swamplands that we have known about in history and maybe those that we have actually gone by. And Ed, you can, all, you can give us a great amount of enlightenment with regard to their carbon sequestering capabilities and the importance they are in general to the ecosystem. So I really look forward to you sharing your thoughts. So first, before we get started, let me just ask what motivated you to write this book? Just visiting peatlands over the decades and coming to the conclusion that uh, these, these ecosystems that we've demonized as, you know, the haunts of ghosts and the sources of disease hold an awful lot more value, both aesthetically in peculiar, wonderful ways, but also in terms of uh, what they offer in terms of car carbon storage, filtering water, mitigating floods. They are really wonderful, magical places uh, that I think that we have overlooked and misunderstood and still don't understand well. You brought up the, the benefit of peatlands, and you also talked to me specifically about the history of how peat has been used. Would you mind just sharing that with people in terms of, is this a renewable resource or technically a non-renewable resource that is being renewed? And also the carbon sequestering capabilities of peat. Well, you think about it, peat is the precursor to coal. If you heat it up and put it under pressure long enough, it turns into coal. And the Dutch realized this very early on and began burning it. And it became the main source of fuel throughout Europe and Great Britain and Scandinavia and Russia for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so we started digging up peat to essentially heat homes and we continued to do that uh, in places like Ireland, Finland, and Estonia, and even Rwanda and Burundi that are using peat uh, to produce power plants. So it is a source of energy and it is being rapidly depleted. Uh, virtually almost all of the peat is gone from Europe now and Great Britain. And in terms of its carbon sequestering properties, it has quite a few, right? Yeah, you think about it, it's the peatlands have a very small footprint. 3% of the world is covered in peatlands, but they store twice as much carbon as all of the world's forests combined. And some peatlands, such as the very rich peatlands in the Hudson Bay lowlands, store five times more carbon than the equivalent area of the Amazon rainforest. Yeah. When, you, when you talk about these things and you think about people's interest in global climate change today, Specifically, what would you like people to take away from this book in terms of how they could look at the world today and perhaps even solutions? Well, we've the, the beauty of this story is that, you know, if you compare Pete to say the, the decline of sea ice, we're really not going to be able to do anything to stop the, the recession of, of sea ice and the meltdown of glaciers and ice caps. But we can do something about what peat we have left remaining. All we have to do is protect those that exist. So, and they exist in areas where we don't have a lot of people living or a lot of industrial development. So that's relatively easy, but we can also restore those peatlands that we have degraded very badly. And countries like China are doing this. Russia is doing this to stop wildfires because they've dried out their peat so badly because they mined it for energy use, that they are now re-wetting their peatlands to stop those runaway wildfires. 
And we can do this fairly efficiently. In fact, it's actually cheaper to restore peatland than it is to restore a forest. And it requires a lot less fertilizer, for example, to do that. So it's a fairly efficient, cost-effective way of dealing with climate change. And I think that it is one way to move forward and protect also all of those critically endangered species that uh, thrive in peatlands. Can you uh, perhaps give us a little bit more information about that when you talk about species, is this an ecosystem balance issue as well? It is an ecosystem balance issue as well. You know, for example, the red wolf, which is the quintessentially the an American animal found nowhere else in the world, lived in the peatlands on the east coast of the United States, and it was reduced to a remnant population of about 27 in, I think, Texas and Louisiana. And it's been re reintroduced into the Pocosin and Alligator Fish and Wildlife Service National Wildlife Refuges on the East Coast with some success. And also the cocated woodpecker, which like the ivory-billed woodpecker, which was a legendary critter that uh, went extinct, they're successfully re reintroducing it there. But we're also finding moths, butterflies, wasps, uh, and birds in peatlands throughout the world that we did not know existed before. So many of the new species that we are finding now are, are being found in peatlands because they're largely unexplored. Most scientists don't gravitate to them because they're very buggy, they're very squishy, they're very, you know, it's not like a mountaintop, an alpine mountaintop or even a desert where you can maneuver around fairly easily. Peatlands are difficult places. Well, I really appreciate your spending a few minutes with us discussing your book, Swamplands, and we look forward to featuring it uh, over the coming month, and we hope that people will reach out and uh, pick up a copy, because this definitely is a different way of looking at our current climate crisis. So thank you very much for joining us, Ed. Thank you. It was a pleasure.